0: This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com.
1: I trust that you are, you know, I felt pretty good after we left last night because nobody threw any tomatoes at me or rotten eggs or anything like that. And, uh, you know, my attitude with teaching this is to just, you know, eat the grapes, spit out the seeds, ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you and to all truth. How I mean, you know he will lead you and guide you into all truth. I don't know about you, but I really think that truth will speak to you from inside of you as well as from outside of you. Because something happens when you hear the truth is there's something goes on inside of you that goes, that's the peace I'm looking for. Sometimes it kind of might say, you know, your mind will go, I, I don't know if, I, I, don't know, I, don't know if I, I wasn't taught that. But your spirit's going, oh yeah, oh yeah, your spirit man knows what's right. How me know what I'm talking about. Amen. I'm going to uh, go to the book of Daniel this morning. We're going to try to continue to orchestrate some things. Let me just review just a little bit. We're going to go into Daniel chapter 2. We'll begin probably in verse 26. I'm going to start uh, reading this from the Amplified Bible because it does a lot of the homework for you. But let me just by way of review look back just a little bit at what we did last night. We started out in Hebrews by showing you that the Scripture says in Hebrews 1, Paul talking to Hebrews in the first century, 30-some years into the New Covenant, and he says, God hath in these last days spoke to us by the Son, and Paul the Apostle called his day the last days. The Apostle Peter stands up in Acts chapter two. He said, "This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days saith God, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all flesh." That was the second apostolic witness. Then you see the Apostle, John, I'm sorry, the Apostle John, who stands up and says, "Little children, we know that it is the last time because Antichrist is already on the scene." And I told you last night that was before Osama, Obama, Chelsea's mama, or the last Trump. Now we're just abiding in the... (laughs) Well, hallelujah. I just have to throw... Those words just rhyme so good, you know, you just have to kind of throw it in there. But, uh, you know, but these guys believe they were living in the last days. Now, I don't think they just believed they were. I think we have to assume something. I mean, because I have literally heard prophecy teachers say, well, these guys just believed they were living in the last days. And everybody has to believe they're living in the last days, to which I reply, what else did they believe then that they were wrong about? That gets on a slippery slope for me. Because if you're going to trust the Word of God, you have to trust the Word of God. And if you're going to trust the people that literally walked with Jesus and heard Him say some things, they weren't confused about what they thought was about to happen. But what we showed you last night is, especially... When we start to look at the word world where, uh, where Jesus when he began to give the prophecy in Matthew 24 said he pointed to all the beautiful buildings of the temple, He's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he said, Do you see all these things? Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And they then they said, Well, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world, King James' Bible says in the original. The New King James in every translation since that time, and if you look at the Greek word itself, it's very clear that he wasn't talking about world as in global, but the end of an age. So he said, What will be the sign of your coming and the end of not the world, of a global collapse, because if that's the case, we have a real conflict with Ephesians that uses the correct word for world. It says, to him be glory in the churches throughout all generations. World without end is the correct word for world. So he's talking about a world that does not end. That ought to be good news in itself. Somebody says, well, Brother Howes, don't you believe we are in the biblical uh, end of time? To which I reply, the Bible does not talk about the end of time. The Bible talks about the time of the end. Big difference. Because it's not the end of time as no more time. And and of course, you know, what usually happens is in our mind, we go to Revelation chapter 10, where the mighty angel stands up and says, time no longer. But if you read that in other translations, and you look at the correct translations of it, he's saying that there will be no more intervention of time, that there should be any more waiting or delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. So it's not the end of time. It was the appointed time of the end. And the appointed time of the end was not the appointed time of the end of a global collapse. It was the appointed time of the end of the old covenant. And they were coming out of an old covenant paradigm and coming into a different kind of government. In other words, what was happening is the the law of Moses. Moses gave you the law, John 1 says, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. In other words, there was a whole different covenant that was coming on the scene. Let me say this as well, because I think it's important for me to mention this. One of, the, one of my books back there that's titled From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift, is like the book I wrote that, that was like not the last one was The Great I Am. The one before that is called uh, From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. I think it's one of the most important pieces of work I've done, because what I do in that book is marry the gospel of grace to the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom has to be there, because if we, understand, if we think we have left the law of Moses to be lawless, we are missing the point, which a lot of people left the law. We're not under law, but they became lawless. But when John the Baptist came on the scene and Jesus started teaching, he said, repent, which doesn't mean you need to get saved over and over again. It means you need to change the way you think. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what was about to happen was they were about to leave the government of rules on rocks for the government of the kingdom, which is the government of Holy Spirit. Stay with me a moment. Last night I showed you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when I put the circles up on the wall that he says that he wrote to the church at Corinth, first century church, and he says to them, you are the people upon whom the ends, King James says, of the world have come. Every other translation, and the Greek word again there is eon or aeon, it's literally translated as we read it from other translations last night. You are the people upon whom the ends, plural, of the ages have now come. They were at the back end of the old covenant and the front end of the new covenant, and between those two covenants was a 40-year transition period that was a perfect example of the wilderness journey when they came out of Egypt headed for their promised land is that it was 40 years, and the gap that was between these two ages is where most of the New Testament is written. In other words, the old covenant was fading away, and the new covenant was coming on the scene, so as one was decreasing, the other was increasing, and how many of Jesus came to fulfill, come on, the law so that the law could make no more demands on you. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that I believe Satan was bound from deceiving is because Colossians chapter 2 tells you that he disarmed principalities and powers, and in that same chapter, in that context, he tells you what the weapon of the enemy was, was the handwriting of ordinance that was against you, it was the power of condemnation to make you run from God rather than run to Him. Now, track with me just a little bit. And everything that happened to them, Jesus gave the prophecy in Matthew chapter 24 about the end of the world or the end of the age, literally. And he said, this generation will not pass away. That generation was 40 years long, just like the wilderness journey. Jesus gave that prophecy in, in A.D. 30. The, it came to pass in, in A.D. 70, exactly 40 years, same amount of time as the wilderness journey. And then Paul comes along and says, but everything that happened to them under Moses happened to them as an example, talking to the church at Corinth, upon whom the ends of the ages had come. So everything that they saw by type and shadow under Moses was now being fulfilled in Christ. See, I feel the preacher already trying to I, want to, I want to preach instead of teach here. But all of the things that happened to them happened as an example upon whom us, upon whom the ends of the ages had now come. He was talking to the first century church at Corinth. And so you see everything that, that, that he was an example. For instance, John the Baptist says, right, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, oh, in Exodus, they take a lamb out from among the sheep and the goats. They put blood on the doorpost of the house. How many know they did that for hundreds of years, not really realizing there was another lamb coming? The real lamb of God. Come on, somebody. How many know they, they, they left Egypt delivered by the blood? Jesus is the night before his decease, takes them to the Passover feast. And when he sets at meat, he says, with great desire have I desired to eat this Passover because he's signaling another exodus is upon us. And then he looks at them and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. I'm the real lamb of God. And the blood is going to be shed, and you will never have to kill another woolly lamb. But we're going to leave something different this time. We're not leaving a physical bondage. We're leaving a spiritual bondage. We're leaving an old covenant paradigm because it, I showed you last night. Am I going too fast? Are we okay? And Revelation chapter 11, I believe it is verse 8, it says, and their dead bodies, talking about the two witnesses, And the two witnesses to me are symbolic of of Moses and Elijah because they have the power to shut up the heavens that it rain not during the days of their prophecy and to smite the earth as often as they will with plagues. That's Moses and Elijah. That's the law and prophets. We'll lie in the street of the great city which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Egypt where also our Lord was crucified. Our Lord was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. Our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was the centerpiece of Judaism, and what he's saying is the bondage we're about to leave and the Egypt we're leaving this time
0: is religious bondage. I'm going to try this side. See, I think it's easier to get people delivered from cocaine than it is to get them delivered from religion. They would rather fight than switch. And people know what's in the hymnal, but they don't know what's in their Bible.
1: We quote a lot of songs, but it's not in the scriptures sometimes. But when, when, when I, you start talking about de- being delivered from the body, so he calls it spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. So the Exodus this time was out of an old covenant paradigm. But watch this. Because when they left Egypt, they were delivered by the blood in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, which speaks to me of water baptism. They're delivered by blood in Egypt, they're delivered by the water at the Red Sea. And exactly 50 days after they leave Egypt, They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God comes down on the mountain. He's excited because He wants to bring this whole nation of Israel into relationship with Himself and make a nation of priests. I'm going to be to them a God. They're going to be to me a people. I'm going to have personal relationship with all of them. They're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. I'm going to make a nation of priests. I'm going to use them to touch the nations of the earth. And the moment God comes down on the mountain, the people said in their tents, we're afraid of him, Moses, you go talk to him. And whatever he says to you, we will do it. And they forfeited a personal relationship with God for a mediator system. God said, if you don't want to read Deuteronomy 5, it's the backstory." story. Galatians chapter 3 and 4 tells us that the law was added because of a transgression. That transgression was not just the transgression of Adam, that's included. That transgression was they forfeited a personal relationship with God and a covenant that was one-sided. They forfeited the Abrahamic covenant because God brought them out of Egypt on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, which only required faith. Come on, somebody. And now they have forfeited that relationship for a mediator system, and God gives them the law on Mount Sinai. I said, if you don't want a relationship, you've got to have rules. And the more, the less relationship you have, the more rules you have to have. Now watch this, because in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene. He's the real Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another exodus has begun. Are you tracking with me? And then we find them in the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days God pours out His Spirit 50 days after the Lamb is slain. Fifty days after the lamb is killed in Egypt and blood is on the doorpost, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. Fifty days after the real lamb of God is crucified, and they're in an upper room exactly 50 days, which is the num- The word the, when the day of Pentecost is fully come. The reason it's called Pentecost is because Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover.
0: This time in an upper room, God doesn't give them rules on rocks. He gives them the Holy Ghost.
1: Now say with me, because this is one of the most important things I might say. So that in the New Covenant, the Holy Ghost is to the New Covenant what the law was to the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant was rules on rocks, the New Covenant God restores relationship, and the government of Holy Spirit starts to operate. Because what you've done is repent. You've, you've changed the way you think. You've shifted from the government of rules on rocks to the indwelling government of Holy Spirit, where now the kingdom of God is the government that's in your life. Now, how many know when you got the government of heaven living inside of you and the king himself? Because the old covenant was full of demand without any supply, and the new covenant is full of supply which creates the response of bringing about the kingdom, which is righteousness, peace, and joy, located in the Holy Ghost, so that if you get free from law, but don't get gripped by grace, you're going to be lawless. But when you start to repent, which means change the way you think, what you're doing is you are changing what used to govern you, namely, rules, and regulations that weren't coming from your heart because under the new covenant, help me, Holy Ghost, hallelujah, under the old covenant, you were conformed, but in the new covenant, you're transformed.
0: Hallelujah.
1: And it's full of supply. And in the old covenant, when God gave the law, 3,000 people dropped dead. In the new covenant, when God gave them the Holy Spirit, exactly 3,000 were added to the church because the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And then God restores what they lost under the old covenant because Peter stood up. How I many know in the old covenant they forfeited the whole nation becoming a priest for a mediator system? God said, Send Aaron and his sons up the mountain, I'll make a priesthood out of them, and they'll be to, the, be, you know, for, to God for the people, and there'll be a mediator system. But Peter grabs that in the New Testament. He says, but you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood, and God restores the priesthood to the believer. You know what? It wasn't 300 years into human history until the church had begun to distance people from the relationship with God and started to create a hierarchical system again of priests, where you have to come to a priest to get forgiveness of sin. But in 1500 and something, Luther stood up. Nailed 90-some-point thesis to the door, said, listen, we're going back to the priesthood of the believer because God ha- wants to have access to everybody. Can I tell you the kingdom of God's alive and well on planet Earth? So we're talking about the government of heaven. We're talking about the kingdom. But how many know they were looking for? Listen, I think sometimes people, they're preconceived. This, this really speaks to me because their preconceived idea of how Jesus would come the first time was so out of their paradigm that they missed it.
0: And I wonder sometimes if God doesn't want to shake up the way we perceive for fear that we might
1: miss it. Because I think sometimes we're so enamored with the coming Jesus that we forget about the one that's already in the room.
0: Somebody said, no, when he really comes. no." Well, is he here or not? Come on with me a
1: little bit now, you know, think about this stuff. Because what what, what I think, what we realize is that, listen, God does not want to live in an old flapping tent or a tabernacle someplace. He moved out of that one into this one. Hallelujah. Behold, I'm getting way ahead of myself, Uh, Revelation 21 says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The message Bible says it like this, look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He made his home in men. Slap your neighbor, tell him property values just went up. Because when God moves in the neighborhood, he starts his new creation project of making all things new. That's the per- that's the goal of the new creation, is that God is making all things. New, And he says, write this down because these words are true and they are faithful. So he's talking about the coming of the kingdom. And in, in that book back there called From Law to Grace, The Kingdom to Paradise, I talk about how if you move away from law and legalism and don't move towards the government of the Holy Spirit, you become an untoward generation because when our hearts turn toward the Lord, and I know that's a play on words a little bit, but the truth of it is, is that when you're not towards, in other words, it's wherever your heart is towards. My heart is towards the Lord. My heart is towards the government of the Holy Spirit working in my life to produce in me the image and likeness of God because God is not just interested in getting me from here to there, He's interested in getting what's happening there to operate here. And I think one of the main points of Christianity mentioned, here's here's the basic mindset of the American Christian. Just give me the basic rules for what it takes for me to go to heaven and to miss hell and I'm happy. I got my ticket, I'm on my way. And that's so far from what all the gospel has to offer. Because when Jesus started teaching the kingdom, He didn't teach the kingdom as if it was some other world stuff. He taught it as this world stuff. He taught it as if you, you know, the kingdom is like sowing and reaping. The kingdom is like stewardship. The kingdom of God is like a man who sowed seed in a, seed in a field and so on. In other words, he, he talks about this world and those that are faithful. I'll make them ruler over cities. That's not talking about, I've heard people talk, well, that means God's going to give us a planet somewhere. And we're going to rule over cities out there in outer space. No, no. That means God wants to give you authority at least in some dimension first of all over yourself then in your home then in your come on are you and then then influencing your communities because i think that there are different degrees of leadership and authority and rulership in the kingdom of god but i think what we need to realize is that this is not about us going there one day and being happy this is about us receiving what's happening there to bring it here so that we can live in the kingdom right now because the moment i got born again i was translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son and I I am right now a citizen of the kingdom with delegated authority to operate the business of the kingdom that I represent. I probably told this story here, but I fly, you know, what's bad is I got to drive all the way from Berkeley Springs, either to Washington, LA, Washington National, or Baltimore to fly. And I've been on so many airplanes that I got on a airplane, this has been a number of years ago, and uh uh, uh the flight attendant says to me, she says, uh, she says to me, sir, I've seen you on this flight a lot. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, uh, you fly out of Washington a lot. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, are you a government official? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, uh, what branch of the government are you? I said, I'm a delegate. She said, a delegate? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, would you like to move up to first class? I said, yes, ma'am. So she bumped me up to first class, and I'm sitting in first class. And she said, "So you're a delegate?" I said, "Yes, ma'am. I'm not only a delegate; I'm an ambassador." She said, "An ambassador as well as a delegate?" I said, "Yes, ma'am." Hallelujah. Got it. I got my papers with me. We're an ambassador of Christ with delegated authority. She said, "Well, sir." She said, "Well, Mr. Ambassador, where are you headed today?" I said, "Baton Rouge, Louisiana." She said, "Well, there is no government in Baton Rouge, is there?" I said, "There will be when I get there." I know that sounds funny, but I mean that from the bottom of my heart. She said, exactly what do you do, sir? I said, I'm a tutor to kings. They don't know they're kings yet. They don't know they're kings and priests unto God. And we started to come to find out her husband was a pastor. We had revival on first class, which she really found out. Hallelujah. But how many of that's really the truth is that our, our, our mission is that we are ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by not counting men's sin against them and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. How many know that's a powerful reality that is our mission right now still in the earth as delegated authority to rule as kings and priests, as a nation of priests? And while that was the assignment God would have given to Israel, how I many know the greater Israel of God has now got the assignment as a kingdom of priests? After the order of Melchizedek, and what do we serve? We serve bread and wine. What is bread and wine? It's the communion of the new covenant. Hallelujah. It's the same thing Jesus served. This is my body. It was broken for you. What we, the word consecrate, when you consecrate a priest, the word consecrate means to fill the hands. So what are we putting in your hands? We're putting in your hands bread and wine. That's all we serve. We're serving the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is the communion meal. It is, this is my body, it was broken for you. This is the blood of the covenant which was poured out for you. Take it and eat it and drink ye all of it. And how many know he does that to get us to realize that when that comes, it inaugurates a kingdom operation within our hearts, and something in us says, I, listen, let me tell you, admit, when, when, when they started eating on lamb, I, I, I'm sidetracking too much here, but when they started feeding on lamb in Egypt in midnight hour, it was the darkest hour. They started eating the lamb. They started drinking the cup. And at midnight, something hit them. It's midnight. And something hit them that said, I can't live in this bondage anymore. And they put their shoes on their feet, their staff in their hand, and they started in Exodus. Can I tell you what happened to me when I began to understand the finished work of Jesus Christ? And I started feeding and eating on the lamb. When I got enough lamb in my belly and started drinking the cup of the New Covenant and the wine of the Holy Spirit, something hit me that says, I can't live in this bondage anymore. Religious bondage, substance abuse bondage, sin bondage, none of it. I can't live in it any longer. I've got something in my belly that's driving me to get up and get
0: out of it. That's what we serve. Everybody preaches the kingdom, though, not everybody.
1: Some preach the kingdom like it's something way out in the future. On some glad morning, the kingdom is going to come. But how many know the kingdom came when the Holy Spirit arrived? The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's located in the Holy Ghost. Now let's, let's look at the timing of the kingdom. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 26. This is the dream that, the king, uh, that king Nebuchadnezzar had had. And, and let let me just set the stage for this because King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, and God was showing him in the dream. But he he starts to call in all of his advisors when he has this dream. I don't this, you talk about a high pressure job. He wants these guys to interpret his dream, except he can't remember the dream. I mean, if I was a soothsayer or an astrologer or some of the guys he had on staff here to interpret, I I, I could at least fake it or give it a shot if you could at least tell me what your dream was. Because he's telling them, if you don't come up with an answer for this, you guys ain't worth your salt. I'm going to have all of you beheaded in the morning. It's over for you. That's a high-pressure job. And so God begins to raise up a man like Daniel. How many know God always has in place... Even in the midst of bad political environments, in the midst of chaos, he's always got a Daniel, a Shadrach, Meshach, and a Bendigo somewhere. Come on, somebody. How many of God always preserves a seed somewhere? And in the midst of that, this, this is where this begins. The king has had this dream. The soothsayers, the astrologers, and all the latest theologians have written their books, and it has all failed. And then the king said to Daniel, verse 26, I'm reading from the Amplified, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to the king the dream which I have seen and the interpretation of it? And Daniel answered the king, the mysterious secret which the king has demanded, neither the wise men, enchanters, magicians, nor astrologers can show the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what it shall be, watch this, in the latter days. Everybody say, latter days. Touch your neighbor, say, pay attention to this. He says, latter days. Watch again. I'm reading it from the episode. Watch what it shall be in the latter days at the end of days. Now, he's talking about end times like we are. Except he's going to tell you when the end times are, like I have continued to reiterate and show you over and over and over in the Scripture, that the last days are not in our future. They are in our past. And that we need to lose a last day mentality and get a new day mentality. We need to lose an old covenant paradigm and start to learn how to operate in the new covenant and in the kingdom of God. And when Paul wrote to Timothy and told him you need to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth, he wasn't talking about you need to understand Greek and Hebrew. He was talking about you need to understand what is truth in relationship to which covenant you're under. That's rightly dividing the word of truth.
0: Well, hallelujah. See, the reason we still have mixture in the church in America is because we still,
1: what's amazing to me is that we are 2,000 and some years into the new covenant.
0: And at best, we're a mixture of two covenants. Well, help me. I don't want to make nobody mad, we're still running around
1: worried about red heifers and prayer shawls. We're trying to get
0: people to go back to Judaism. And the whole New Testament was to try to get them to come out of it. I felt that come back. That was a little kick back there. But what I'm telling you is that the new covenant is not an addendum to the old one. It is not Jesus plus. It's a completely different covenant. And learning how to rightly divide the old
1: covenant was about a law you had to keep. And the new covenant is about receiving a life that will keep you. The old covenant, you functioned out of rules, and in the new covenant, you live out of a relationship. In the old covenant, you got people to do stuff through fear. and the new covenant, we learn to live by faith. Are you, are you tracking with me? Learning how to rightly divide the word of truth, and there's a—I know there's a lot of radical stuff and a lot of mess in it. But the truth of it is, is that we are really, I believe, in a gospel revolution where God is beginning to wake some folks up to say, "Wait a minute, listen." If, you know, uh, Paul tells them in one place. He said, do "You, you, you that are bent on being under the law, do you hear what the law really says?" See, these guys were not being uh, uh, cru- uh, crucified and persecuted because they're telling you, "Get your ticket." Go to heaven. They're being persecuted because they, they announced there's another king in town. Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. That Moses is not in charge, Jesus is in charge. Come on, something that we're not under those rules any longer. We're under this relationship. A new set. Are you, are you tracking? That was so radical of a shift that persecution was coming to them for teaching like that. I think sometimes we think we've been persecuted. We, we ain't seen nothing like these guys, and see, there's, there's, there's. I, I sometimes think I read stuff on Facebook. I
0: think, you know what? Do you think the apostles of old would have died for that mess? They probably wouldn't even took time to read it. <laughs> but what you would be willing to die for?
1: is what they were proclaiming, and that was freedom and liberty in the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that was coming on the scene that had the power to transform lives and to bring about God's purpose in the earth and to fill the earth with His glory and His image and to see God's kingdom expand, not just when we get there, but to invade the earth because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He tells them in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for your possession. So Daniel is in this position where he is now being asked by the king, tell me what this dream is, and he goes on to say, he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, this verse 28, what it shall be in the last days, the end of days. Your dream and visions in your head upon your bed are these. As for you, O king, as you were lying upon your bed, thoughts came into your mind about what should come to pass hereafter, and he who reveals secrets was making known to you what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than anyone else living. But in order that the interpretation may be known under the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart and mind. You, O king, saw and behold, there was a great image. This image was mighty and exceedingly great brightness stood before you. The appearance of it was frightening and terrible. As for this image, its head was of fine gold the breast, as, uh, the breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, the baked clay of the potter. As you looked, a stone was cut out, of the, out without human hands, which smote the image on its feet of iron and baked clay of the potter and broke them to pieces. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 tells you who that stone was. That stone was the stone who the builders rejected, who was the, stomp, the stone of offense and the stumbling block to them. How many know he was Jesus none other? Come on, how many know he's talking about here? The stone cut out of the mountains was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Touch your neighbor, time you're a chip off the old block. Because watch this. He saw, the, he saw this, this, he saw this uh, a stone cut out of the mountain without human hands, which smote the image on its feet broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the baked clay of the potter, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were like uh, broken and crushed together, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them could be found. And the stone that smote the image, I love this, and the stone that smote the
0: image became a great mountain or rock and filled the whole earth. This is
1: when I say victorious eschatology, I mean victorious eschatology. Because the king is seeing what the end is going to be, and he said, There's a rock coming. His name is Jesus. You're a chip off the old block. But these pieces are becoming a great mountain, and they're going to fill the whole earth. So that here Jesus starts teaching the kingdom. He said, Here's what the kingdom is like: it's like a leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole thing was infected. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called the Wonderful, the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Somebody said to me, Brother Howes, you don't believe in a one-world government? Yes, I do, but I believe in the one that's on His shoulders. And the government shall be upon His shoulders and the kingdom of God will cover the earth. That's prophetic declaration of what would happen is that the kingdom of God would be what ultimately wins out. See, that's not talking about us going to the kingdom. That's talking about the kingdom coming. And when the scribe, even the scribes and Pharisees stood before Jesus in Luke chapter 17, they said, when will the kingdom come? He didn't say, Lord, when are we going to the kingdom? He said, when will the kingdom come? And Jesus' answer was, it doesn't come with observation, outward show, or open display. The word there is the same word that's used in Galatians where Paul said, I'm afraid of you because you go back up under the law and you observe laws and feasts and months. In other words, he's saying the kingdom is not coming through old covenant observances. It's coming through the power of the Holy Spirit as an indwelling reality inside of you because the stone the builders rejected has now become the head of the corner. Are you tracking with me? And then he goes on to say, he goes on to say that it would cover the whole, it would fill the whole earth. This was the dream, and we will tell the interpretation of it to the king. You, O king, are the king of earthly kings, to whom the God of heaven has given kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, he has given unto you into your hand, and he has made you rule over them all. You, king of Babylon, are the head of gold. Everybody say, Babylon is the head of gold. You, king of Babylon, are the head of gold. And after you shall arise another kingdom, the the Meadow Persian inferior to you, how I many of the Medo-Persian kingdom was what was in power when Esther was on the scene? And it was under Darius the Media, it was the Persians who also gave the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem in the book of Ezra. Are you tracking with me? So here, the second kingdom that this image would be, this image of the beast would be, is it would be the Medo-Persian kingdom, and still a third kingdom of bronze, Greece, under Alexander the Great, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom, Rome, shall be strong as iron, since iron breaks to pieces and subdues all things, and like the iron which crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw that the feet and the toes partly of baked clay of the potter and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but there shall be in it some of the firmness and strength of the iron, just as you saw the iron mixed with miry earth and clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay of the potter, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle and partly broken. And as you saw the iron mixed with miry and earthen clay, so they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men in marriage bonds. But they shall not hold together, for two such elements or ideologies can never harmonize, even as
0: iron does not mingle itself with clay. Now, here's let me, let, let me just let me review here. Head of gold, Babylon. The next kingdom, Persia. Third kingdom,
1: Greece, Alexander the Great. Fourth kingdom, Rome. This is important. See See the digression. See, this is the history of Israel. They were carried away captive by Babylon, then the Persians, then the Greeks. And now, when Jesus comes on the scene, Rome is in power. So the fourth kingdom was Rome. Are you tracking with me? Watch this, because that's important. The fourth kingdom was Rome, but in verse 44 says, And the days of these final ten kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and its sovereignty be left to another people, but it shall break and crush and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, And that it broke in pieces the iron and the clay. Just as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known, go ahead, to the king, what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation of it is sure. He goes on to tell you what he's calling you this. He's telling the king, here's what's going to happen. In the latter days, this is the vision you've had. You, king of Babylon, are the first one. After you's going to come the Persians, after you's going to come the Greeks, after you's going to come the Romans. This is the vision of what's going to transpire.
0: You know, if I wasn't a believer, if I was not a believer, the fact that somebody could foretell to detail, and
1: we're going to see a lot more details, the fact that somebody could foretell the detail of what kings would be in power and what would happen way before they ever happened would be a convincing thing to me. With great precision and great detail, you could tell me what was going to happen in the future. And just out, I mean, just like a time clock, Babylon, Persians, Greeks, now the Romans. And all of a sudden in the middle of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom which will not be destroyed. In the middle of the Roman Empire, the rock cut out of the mountains, his name is Jesus, walked up on the bank of the Jordan River, and the king of the kingdom just stood up. Come on, somebody. The stone the builders rejected, who's now going to become the head of the corner, is beginning to declare, repent, the kingdom is at hand. What are you saying? I'm trying to tell you the kingdom is alive and well on planet Earth and has been alive and well ever since Jesus came on the scene. And it is like leaven. Do you know there are more people in that book that I told you about last night, Statistics. There are more people on this planet right now per capita that are believers in Jesus than there's ever been in human history. Well, thanks for getting excited about that. There is a massive revival going on right now among the Arabs. Jesus is literally appearing to some of these people in the Middle East and revival is breaking out in Arab countries. I received. I almost get to. I was telling Pastor Gavin about this last night. I almost get tore up even thinking about this. There's a guy that that that, uh, uh, teaches a lot of my material in Arab churches all over, all over, uh, all over. You know the Arab nations, and he called me on the phone. He said, "Dr. House, he said I I preach for these Arab churches that are all watching your material, which just to me is amazing. The power of a a camera, the YouTube stuff and videos like this, and many of them, he said, have been converted." from Islam to Christianity because of the stuff that you're teaching about the present reality of the kingdom of God. And he said, these people took up an offering. They want to give you an offering to show you their love and appreciation for you. And he said, they make about $100 to $150 a month. That's what their normal income. He said, they took up a $232 offering. And I said, Isa, I don't know if I can even receive that. Those people need that worse than I need it. He said, no, you don't understand. They want to show you their love and appreciation for your work in this field that has literally transformed their lives to set them free from the bondages. How many know religion can be one of the biggest enemies on the planet? Come on, somebody. Ours and theirs, if it's not a reality of a Jesus, it is a present reality of the kingdom of God who comes to give you the best life on the planet. Righteousness, peace, and joy located in the Holy Ghost. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God God said, I want to give you as the days of heaven on earth. Jesus came to announce. Oh, I feel like preaching this morning. I know it's early in the morning. But Jesus came to announce the kingdom, and when He came to announce the kingdom, He came to announce that, listen, I want to give you life and that more abundantly. And I want to say this as well. This might be a bit of a stretch for some of you. But Jesus said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you that the word there, everlasting, means aeonian or the life of the coming age. Let me preface what I'm going to say by saying this. Say this with me. He believes eternal life includes going to heaven when you die. Do we have that settled? But see, eternal life is more than when you die, you get it. Eternal life in the context of what Jesus was talking about was the life of the coming age. What was the life of the coming age? Jesus said this is life aeonian. This is the life of the coming age that you might know God the Father and the Son. In other words, here's the life of the coming ages that you could live life in the context of a father-son relationship because under the old covenant you were slaves and servants. But I don't want slaves and servants. I want sons that are heirs of God and joint heirs that are going to participate in my new creation project. Vessels and vehicles that are a part of the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. And in the middle of Roman occupation, the final ten kings, Jesus stands up and announces, the rock, he's the stone. He says, change
0: the way you think. The kingdom is at hand. It is within your grasp. And he stood up in the middle of bad political upheaval, great
1: persecution, and said, go get me the book of Isaiah. And they brought him the book of Isaiah, and he found the place where it was written, for the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to declare the acceptable year of the Lord and the year of the favor of our God and Jesus got up in the middle of political upheaval and bad times and catastrophic stuff going on and he didn't get up and say doom and despair and this is about to wind up and boy ain't it bad the devil's big and look how it's about to fall apart he stood up and said I'm gonna preach favor when it don't look like favor I'm gonna prophesy to dry bones and tell them to live I'm not gonna tell them how dry they are how bad they are I'm gonna preach a message of
0: hope Because I'm anointed. To set at liberty them, he's
1: not talking to drug dealers on the street. He's talking to people been in church their whole life because they're beat up, bruised, battered, brokenhearted, disappointed. Because religion becomes a thief that robs them of their life, their joy, their peace, their looks. Come on, somebody. Their romance, their, uh, their future, everything about it. See, I'm going to tell you that I think that what God is trying to do is give us the best life on the planet. Because aeonian life or the life of the coming age is not a life of living in misery for 70 or 80 years. And then when I get there, I can be happy. The life of the coming age is God said, I want to give you back your life. I want to give you the abundant life, the best life on the planet. And even the things that he deals with in our lives that are not proper and correct, that are sin, are not because it gets us from here to there, but because it gets what's happening there to operate right here. Because when he says, they that do such things will not, keyword, inherit the kingdom... He wasn't talking about they which do such things are are not going to go to heaven. He's talking about they're not inheriting the kingdom and their present everyday life right now. Oh, y'all ain't going to help me preach. Hallelujah. But here's the deal for me. See, if if, if there's nothing beyond this, and I believe there is, I believe there is a heaven, I believe there's a hell. I I believe, in other words, I, I believe there is a future beyond this. But if there was nothing but this, I would still do this. You know why? It's the best life on the planet. And you know what Jesus said? The life then becomes the light because God wants to not get us from here to there. His His whole project is to bring about new creation. I am making all things new. And what God wants to do is restore his image back. See, our, our problem right now in all over the world is we are so confused about identity of every sort. But God wants to make us image bearers because his call is not just to get us from here to there, the whom he did for no, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son. And what is man? Come on, somebody. There's the question that's asked in Psalm. But whenever Jesus walks into the temple
0: and before Pilate, he says, "Behold." The man. That's the pattern. That's the project. That's the prototype. That's the firstborn of a brand new
1: species. And when I got born again, I got regenerated. Oh, I'm probably going to make somebody mad today. But somebody said, well, I was born like this or I was born like that. So
0: was I. But when I got born again... I got regenerated. I got a new DNA. I
1: got new genes. Somebody help me preach. I got my daddy's genes in me. Hallelujah. The older I get, the more I look like my earthly father. Hallelujah. But can I tell you, the more mature I get in my spiritual man, the more I look like Abba. Hallelujah. That's the project. Are you tracking with me? And he tells them what's going to happen in the latter days. I, I got a lot to cover here. Let's go to Daniel 9 with that thought. Let me say this as well. Could you bring up for me uh, the, the the line of Caesar's charts while I'm here? Let me let me grab this for a moment. Because when it is Rome that is in power during the time of the kingdom. Am I, am I making sense so far? We're good tracking with me? Can you bring me up uh, my my chart of the line of the Caesars? How many can see that, first of all, that these... these uh, that it was Rome that was in power when Jesus comes on the scene. Is that pretty clear there from Daniel 2? Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, Rome. The book of Revelation is written during that time of the king. One of the, th- one of the reasons, this is in my book back there. There's a lot of stuff that in, is in that book back there on the book of Revelation, and this it wasn't in the first version of this, but in my revised version, because I got so many challenges over the dating of the book of Revelation, that we show ten proofs why the book of Revelation was written prior to A.D. 70, and that it was about the siege of the Romans on Jerusalem to destroy the city and the temple in fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have a version of the Olivet Discourse, which was the prophecy of Matthew 24 where Jesus stood up talked about the Great Tribulation, the end of the world, or the end of the age literally, and all the stuff that would happen. The Gospel of John does not have that version. The reason I believe the Gospel of John does not have the Olivet Discourse is because the book of Revelation is John's expanded version of the Olivet Discourse. It is the fulfillment. It is if you see all of the stuff unfold. Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. The four horses of the apocalypse unfold just exactly like the prophecy of Jesus. The sealed book opens. Then you see 144,000 people saved. they're the first fruits among the Jews. In other words, they were the believers who literally grabbed the gospel and believed it. They were out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you come on through the book and you see all of these catastrophes unfold that are very similar to the plagues that you found in Egypt because what God is trying to do is bring another exodus. Are you tracking with me? And so then when you start seeing these beasts, again he's talking from the same perspective, and even Bible prophecy teachers will use the book of Daniel and lay it beside the book of Revelation, except they try to add to it parentheses theories and stuff like, well,
0: this is a renewed Roman Empire, which there's no Bible for. That's all extra biblical. It
1: happened because Daniel is prophesying this is what's going to happen in the biblical last days. Not the end of time, the time of the end. The time of what end? The time of the end of the old covenant. And here's one of the things, go ahead, bring that chart back up and let me be able to see it as well. Bring the chart back of the, the Caesars. Here in the book of Revelation, it said they also, there are also... He tells them, here's the mind that has wisdom, that they are also seven kings. Five of them have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only for a short season. If you go back to the Julian line of Caesars from the time of Jesus, there were five kings who had fallen. The first king was Julius Caesar from 49 to 44 B.C., Augustus from 27 B.C. to AD. I'm sorry, there was, uh, the, not from the time of Jesus, but there was five kings in the Julian line of Caesars, the Roman Empire. Are you still tracking with me? And I'm trying to show you how all of this fits like a glove. So the first king that was fallen was Julius Caesar. The second one was Augustus. I, I always remember Augustus because on Christmas morning, my dad, we still make a joke about it. My dad's been gone for a number of years. But Christmas morning, my dad would always read the Christmas story. And he would read from Luke 2, and there went out a degree from Caesar in August. So we'd always make a joke, did Caesar get his his degree this year in August? But it was Caesar Augustus from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. Tiberius from A.D. 14 to 37. Caligula from A.D. 37 to 41. Claudius Claudius Caesar from A.D. 41 to 54. Five of them had fallen. Five kings had fallen. Here's the mind that has wisdom. Five of these kings, there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other's not yet come, but when he does, he must continue to short space. The sixth king in the line of Caesars that was in power during the time when all of this is, t- he said, five kings have fallen. All of these first five kings and one is. The one who was was Nero from six, from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. After him, Galba came. He was only there for a short period. And there was there was several rulers that, that came right after that in a short season. Now, let me just say this. Stay with me a moment. Nero was the sixth king in power. He's trying to identify who the beast is here, who the head of this beast is. And the sixth king in power, the one who is, was Nero. His name, Lucius Nero, has a numerical value of 666. Nero set a statue of himself up at Agora and forced the people to burn incense to his statue and to worship the image. They called Nero the beast because he put animal skins on. And he crucified Christians and used them to light his courts in his garden. He burnt their bodies. He killed his own mother. The man was a psychopath. He was the perversion. If you read about the perversions of Nero, this guy was absolutely a psychopath. He, he set up a statue of himself, made the people worship the statue. And once they worshiped his image, they would take the ashes of the incense that they had burnt. And they would put a mark on their head or their hand. They would give them a writing of a libellus without which they could not buy or sell in the marketplace unless they took the mark of the beast. And because Christians would not worship the image of the beast, they were killed. That ought to be worth coming to this seminar for, that the mark of the beast is not in your future. you You can look that up in Wikipedia. Furthermore, it says, here's the patience of the saint. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Nero fell on his own sword and everything about him fits the criteria of in the days of these final kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. But when, the, when, he, was, when he died and was, fell on his sword, after him arose a whole new line of the Caesars, Bring that back up again. We lost uh, the the latter part of it. Nero was officially the last of the Julio-Claudian line line of of emperors. Thus the line ended, and it would have seemed symbolically as if the head of the empire had been wounded to death. Nero committed suicide by falling on his own sword. uh, He fulfilling the scripture, he that killed with the sword will also be killed with the sword. But after him began to arise, I forgot the name of the guy that arose after that began a whole, the Flavian, uh, that's it. There seemed to be a miraculous turnaround because the empire was revived under Vespasian and Titus. When they came into power, they established the Flavian dynasty of Caesar's. Instead of the beast dying, it resurrected under Vespian and ruled for a solid 10 years. That's in the book of Revelation. Now, when we see Daniel describing this beast later on, we're going to see him describe in detail the same thing you see in the book of Revelation. Are are you tracking with me? Am I losing you? Are we still okay? Let's go down. Let's go with that with that into Daniel. Let me I want to at least get this in this first session in cuz we're going to get heavy in this next one.
0: <laughs> if it ain't heavy enough, all right. I think that's if, if I didn't say nothing more than that. That the mark of the beast is not something in your future. It is not your credit card. somebody say, "Well,
1: bro, brother, you know, they're they're, you know, they they're, they're going to, you know, uh, the, your credit cards your mark. They're
0: going to be able to tell everything, but you already got Alexa in your living room. I stood in front of a a, a, a Rolls-Royce
1: in, Palm, I believe it was Palm Beach Airport, and uh, I, I was by myself, and it was in an airport, and I looked at this Rolls-Royce, and I said to I said out loud, that ain't a bad price for a Rolls-Royce. By the time I got to the next gate, pulled my Facebook page up, there's a Rolls-Royce come up. Now, what I'm simply saying is that we, we've got all got, I mean, you can simply turn that off, but that has nothing to do with the mark of the beast, because we have put fear in people for so long about buying and selling that these scan codes and everything, we, everything, ever since I was young, it was, it was first of all, it was a social security number. And then it was a credit card. And then there's the scan codes and there's the barcodes and then it was a computer. And then it was like, OK. And, 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 and even if I'm wrong. It has nothing to do with you buying groceries. It has everything to do with worship. But what they did was made them worship the image of the beast and even their coins. I have an a, a, um, uh, archaeologist that's actually been the one that they've been using to try to find the ark in Israel who showed me some of the Roman coins where it had Caesar's insignia on it. And they, they, they worshiped them as a god. They literally worshiped them as a god. So when the apostles begin to announce, Jesus is Lord, there's another king in town they begin to accuse them, saying, these guys are declaring there's another
0: king. That we might be in trouble, that this king, are y'all hearing where I'm coming from? Yeah. Now let's go to Daniel, Daniel 9.
1: I know I'm being lengthy here, let's see, what time is it? Let's get, in, in the first year of Darius, son of Ahazirus, the offspring of the Medes, who's made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books the numbers of years, which according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must, come to be, must pass by before the desolation. So Daniel is reading Jeremiah about the desolation that was pronounced on Jerusalem must pass before the desolation which had been pronounced on Jerusalem should end. And it was 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied that they would go down into Babylonian captivity for seventy years. And I set my face to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, my confession, and said, "O oh Lord." The great and dreadful God who keeps covenant mercy, loving kindness with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and dealt perversely, done wickedly, and have rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Neither have we listened to and heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us confusion and shame of face as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far off through all the countries to which you have driven them because of the treacherous trespass which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong confusion and shame of face to our kings, to our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and loving kindness and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Yes. All Israel has transgressed your law, even turning aside that they might not obey your voice. Therefore, the curse has been poured out on us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned. In other words, all these catastrophes are coming because we have broken covenant. And he was carried, and, and he was carried out intact, his threatening words, which he threatened against us, against our judges, the kings, the princes, the rulers, generally he ruled us. And he has brought upon us a great evil, for under the whole heaven there has not been done before anything so dreadful as he has caused to be done against Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, as to all this evil that would surely come upon transgressors. So it has come upon us. Yet we have not earnestly begged for forgiveness and treated the favor of the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and have understanding and become wise in our youth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity, the evil, and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is uncompromisingly righteous and rigidly just in all His works, which He does keeping His word. We have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord God, who brought forth Your people out of the land of Egypt, You've secured your renown and a name as it is this day. We have sinned, we have done wickedly. Let me just skip down here because he's talking about what they've all done to do that. Well, let let me just finish reading. Now, therefore, verse 17, our God, listen to and heed the prayer of your servant Daniel and his supplications, and for your own sake, cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear Upon, Open your eyes and look upon our desolation of the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our own righteousness and justice, but for your great mercy and loving kindness. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and act. Do not delay for your word's sake, O God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of the people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen former in the vision, be- being caused to fast swiftly, came near to me and touched me about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he instructed me and made me understand. And he talked with me and said, O oh Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your prayers, the word, giving an answer, went forth, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now look, this is the part I really want to get to. First of all, let me tell you, again, to set the backstory. story. Jeremiah prophesied they would be in captivity for 70 years because they did not keep the covenant of God. Daniel was asking God, how long are we going to be in this condition? And then he starts to give him the answer. He said, 70 weeks of years, or 490 years, are decreed upon your people. And upon your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish and put an end to transgression, to seal up and make full the measure of sin, to purge away and make expiation and reconciliation for sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, permanent moral and spiritual rectitude in every area and relation, to seal up vision and prophecy and profit, and to anoint a holy of holies. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one, a prince shall be seven weeks of years, and sixty-two weeks of years. It shall be built again with city, square, and moat, but in troublesome time. And after sixty-two weeks of years shall the anointed one be cut off or killed, and shall have nothing and no one belonging to and defending him. And the people of the other prince who will come will destroy the city And the sanctuary, its end shall come with the flood. Even to the end there shall be war and desolations are decreed. And he shall enter into a strong and firm covenant with many for one week, seven years. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and offering to cease for the remaining three and one half years. And upon the wing or pinnacle of abomination shall come who makes desolate until the full determined end is poured out on the desolator. Now bring up my timeline chart and we're going to try to make some sense of this. He's telling them. Here's the the story again, Daniel. Remember now, he's talking about the biblical time of the end. And he tells them, first of all, 490 years are determined. You heard me say this last night, but I said, why 490? And why 70 times 7? It's because God himself is bound by what he said in the scriptures. A man must forgive until 70 times 7, 490. 490 is also multiples of Sabbaths and Jubilees. How many know when Jesus stands up in the temple, He declares to them, this is the year, the acceptable year of the Lord, which was the year of Jubilee. In other words, He's telling them, you are in a time and a season where I am declaring favor. And He declared the favor of God in the beginning of His ministry. What we don't know is that Jesus didn't read the full Scripture. The rest of that Scripture says, and to declare the days of the vengeance of our God. And the reason he didn't declare vengeance was because these people still had some time in order to come into the covenants of promise and into their Jubilee, their Sabbath, the rest of God. Are you following me? Now watch this as we bring this chart up here. He said, 70 weeks of years are determined. I need to get where I can see it myself. And I, I, I don't know, if, they, if you all want to, you can make copies of this and give it to people. I don't know if you have any of them or not or made them, but you can give copies because we, 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 you're, you're more than welcome to do this. He says, from the, God is giving Daniel some understanding as to what is going to take place in the latter end. And he said, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, will be, first of all, 49 years they will build the city, and then another 62 weeks of years the Messiah will come. What we don't realize, I can't see it very clear from here myself, so I, I need to look at the chart. He gives the commandment under King Artaxerxes. There we go, thank you. you can, if there's any more, you're welcome to hand them out. He gives the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. Now watch this. Daniel knows the Scriptures. He said, From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, will be 483 years. The commandment goes forth to build and restore Jerusalem in 457 B.C. under King Artaxerxes. I know people get bored when you start talking about history, but if we don't get these pieces, we're going to... We're going to miss the whole point here. The commandment, here's how I remember what king, everybody say this with me, Artaxerxes. Now, if you say that real fast, that's the king's name, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes. (laughs) King Artaxerxes, Persian king, remember the digression of the kingdoms. He gives the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. In 457 BC, Ezra and Nehemiah start to rebuild the city, but in troublesome times, hence the 49 years or the seven weeks of years that
0: Daniel breaks down first. So the wall and the city was built from 457 to
1: 405 or 406, I can't see real good either here, BC. In other words, the first 49 years transpired under Ezra and Nehemiah. I have a whole play, uh, playlist back there on the table called Roadmap Reformation, where I teach from Ezra and Nehemiah and show you how it comes up even through guys like Zechariah, our contemporaries with him during that time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But the key thought here, if you miss all of those points, is that the commandment goes forth to restore and build Jerusalem in 457 B.C. And exactly 483 years later, Jesus stands up in the temple and says, go get me the book of Isaiah. In other words, what God told Daniel was unfolding right in front of their eyes. Once again, if I was not a believer and somebody told me exactly how long it was going to be, now he's telling you this while he's in Babylon. Because he's trying to figure out how long we're going to be here. And God tells him, What's going to take place? But this is this is transpiring, probably. Uh, Daniel, Daniel is in, in, in the in the palace for quite a while under a couple of different ministrations. But here's the deal: he gives this prophecy and says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, will be 483 years. And you go back to uh, Ezra chapter 7 under King Artaxerxes. You read it in, in Ezra chapter 7, Artaxerxes gives the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, and exactly. 483 years later, Messiah shows up and stands up and says, Go get me the book of Isaiah. I'm anointed to preach. Begins the last seven-year period of the scope of the prophecy of Daniel, which most prophecy teachers are teaching as being the end times are the last seven years of the scope of Daniel's prophecy, except they say that after the 483 years, because Israel rejected their Messiah, God put a parenthesis there. Stop time for 2,022 years in counting, and has the next seven years for somewhere in
0: our future. There is no Bible for that. 490 years was determined.
1: And what was happening was they were about to lose their exclusive covenant with Yahweh And God was about to offer it to the Gentiles. And just like the Bible said, 483 years Messiah comes and Messiah confirms the covenant with many for one week.
0: The new covenant. And after three and a half years, Messiah would be cut off.
1: Three and a half years into the ministry of Jesus. What happens? Messiah is cut off. What does He do? He makes an end of sin, brings in everlasting righteousness, seals up the vision, the prophet in the most holy place. Jesus fulfills all of
0: that. Three and a half years into the last seven years of the scope of this prophecy. So that there was only three and a half years left, and then Jesus says to His disciples, before He ascends, go
1: first to Judea, then Jerusalem. And then to the uttermost part of the earth. The, the apostles don't even know yet that the Gentiles are included quite yet because there is still three and a half years of the scope of this 490 year prophecy for Israel to accept their Messiah. So Messiah is cut off in the middle of the last seven, middle of the last seven year period, the three and a half year period, there's three and a half years left of the scope of that prophecy. And the apostles begin to preach to the, hallelujah, to the Jews first. And all of a sudden, God jumps out of their box and starts saving Ethiopians. And Stephen stands up and begins to preach, and he finally says, You, by wicked hands, have crucified the King of glory. And the clock strikes midnight, and the 490 years are ended. And God, hallelujah, nails a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus and makes the greatest apostle of the Gentiles that's ever walked, so that there's no Bible for a future seven year tribulation. It happened exactly like it's right here in front of you, right? And dated historically. You can look at all of the historic documentation. It all happened. And then the prophecy begins with the the back end of the prophecy of Jesus
0: because Jesus gives His prophecy concerning tribulation. In Matthew 24... But when you get to the Book of Revelation, there is no seven-year tribulation because Daniel talks about, and so
1: does Habakkuk. Somebody get me this quickly. Just grab this for me. I'll get into some of this, perhaps in the next uh, uh, in the next segment, especially out of the twelfth uh, chapter of the Book of Daniel. But the back end of this book uh, book end of the back end of this forty-year transition period. Can you look at your charts? Look at your charts. Jesus is cut off in the middle of the last seven-year period. He does exactly what he says he's going to do, and then the gospel of the kingdom is preached to all the world, and God begins to include both Jew and Gentile. Let me say this as well. I, I know I'm being lengthy here this morning. About out of time. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable. The rich man in that story is the Jews. They're rich, they have the covenants of promise. Lazarus is a picture of the Gentiles because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. The rich man in Jesus has given this parable to the rich man. He said, but the rich man he he ended up in hell and he lifted up his eyes and he saw Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham and he says, go warn my brothers not to come here. And Jesus says to him, even though one rose from the dead, still they will not believe. Lazarus is the, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Eliezer, which was the Gentile servant of Abraham who was going to receive the inheritance of Abraham. So what this is a story about is the rich man losing the covenant of promise and the Gentiles receiving it. And he says, send Lazarus from the dead, because if you send Lazarus from the dead, surely my brothers will believe. And it never dawns on us that a couple chapters later, Jesus raises a man by the name of Lazarus from the dead. I promise you, the moment they told the Pharisees, this dude just raised somebody from the dead, they said, please tell us his name is not Lazarus. because it's about lights out for us. We're about to lose the covenants of promise. A lot of these parables are about that. We bring them out of context, but it's talking about them losing their exclusive covenant. But Habakkuk talks about the appointed time of the ends. Who, who got Habakkuk for me? Did Anybody grab that for me? Habakkuk? If you got it for me? Read for me again, sir, if you would. He, uh, Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse number 3, I think it is. For the vision is yet for appointed time, but at the end it will speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not tarry. And Daniel chapter 12, Daniel tells them that the determined time of the end would be 1,260 days, three and a half years, times, times and a half time, forty two months. All through the book of Revelation, the back end of this pointed time of the end is when Jesus prophesied concerning a great tribulation, which such as would not since the world began or would ever be again. He prophesied that all of that tribulation would occur before that generation standing there passed away. And the book of Revelation is not seven years of tribulation. It is times, times, and a half of times, 42 months, 1260 days. Every time you see that, it is the last three and a half years of the scope of this end of that 40-year transition period, and that from the time that the daily sacrifice was abolished in 66 A.D., the Jewish war began, and, th- and three and a half years later, 42 months, times, times, and a half of times the people of the other prince that came, which was Titus, destroyed the city and burned it to the ground. And old Jerusalem
0: faded off the scene and new Jerusalem came on the scene. Have I lost you? What
1: I'm trying to show you is if you don't even get all these details, you're welcome to take these charts and to study them
0: without any gaps, without any additions to putting
1: USA Today in the middle of this paper and trying to hang something out in the future, Daniel clearly tells you the appointed time of the end is the same time that I've been reiterating all through this series on victorious eschatology, that the appointed time of the end is not the end of a global catastrophe. It was the end of the old covenant. And the good news is the mark of the beast is not in your future. And a seven-year tribulation is not in your future. All of that happened just like Jesus said it would. Jesus is not a false prophet. It all happened within that generation. It happened where you see the digression of the kingdom. Babylon, Persians, Greeks, Romans, days of these kings, God of heaven, going to set up a kingdom. And we're a part of that still because it's still going on. And it's still increasing. And that's all I'm going to say in the first session.